One of the interesting things um, that I've noticed over uh, my short time on this earth is that uh, there's a lot of tragedy. And I was thinking about this uh, just a couple days ago, about the reality that um, when human beings experience tragedy, and especially the tragedy of death, they have this tendency to uh, rally together in what's called solidarity. Solidarity is the idea that a community shares an emotion or they share an idea which is common amongst them all and they kind of rally together in unity around that thing. It's called solidarity. And what I've noticed is solidarity comes most powerfully in times of tragedy. I remember in 1999, I was a senior in high school. Don't do the math. Keep listening. (laughs) And uh, that was the year when uh, the shootings in Columbine High School, you remember that? And I remember being a senior in high school thinking to myself, that could have been me. And I'm just feeling that pain. And I remember feeling the solidarity of like, man, I I should feel for them. And then in 2012 in Newtown, Connecticut, do you remember what happened there? A massacre. And in 2012, I was a father of a kindergartner. And I remember thinking to myself, that could have been my daughter. And I watched people praying and watched people weeping. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I feel for them. And that's a sense of solidarity. But what's interesting is in the midst of that kind of stuff, uh, an interesting thing happens with human beings in the midst of tragedy. They begin to experience solidarity, but they also begin to ask for solidarity solidarity when it comes to God. You notice this? Boston uh, Marathon bombings. Pray for Boston everywhere. On social media, people I knew who didn't even believe in God were asking asking to pray for Boston. I'm going, what? And then if you remember the tragedies last year in Paris with the terrorist attacks and you saw pray for Paris emblazoned everywhere, even by people who aren't religious. And I started to realize that in the midst of tragedy, especially in the tragedy of death, there's a solidarity that we as human beings experience. And in the midst of that, we actually are requesting of God to feel what we feel. God, where are you? Are you seeing what's happening? Are you feeling this? Do you know what I'm going through? And some of you who have had tragedy in your own life, whether it be death or something else, you know what we're talking about, the solidarity when we come together and we try to comfort one another. And in our deep, deep darkness, we say, God, where are you? Do you even know? And in fact, if we were to ask God to express his solidarity with humanity, the way that God would best do this is by becoming a human being like us. It would be God taking on himself what it means to be human so that he could feel what we feel. And more than that, what is common to all humanity is this death thing. Death doesn't discriminate. Death is everywhere. It comes to all people. And that's why tragedies of death are the most heart-wrenching of all. And so if God truly wanted to express his solidarity with humanity, not only would he become human, but he would die as a human. And praise God, because the text we're going to look at this morning on Hebrews chapter 2 talks about that exact thing. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 2 if you have your Bible. I'm going to be using the English Standard Version, the ESV. If you don't have that version, you have some other version. I encourage you to pull out your phone. Can you say that in church? 
and uh, your iPad or whatever you got and, and open your ESV, Hebrews chapter 2. And what we're going to see is that it was necessary for Jesus to be human in order that he may die, becoming our victor and our advocate. We're going to see in the death of Jesus that he becomes our victor, the victorious one, and our advocate, the one who stands pleading our case. So let's see this in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So, Father, this is our text And it's a glorious text which displays your solidarity with humanity. You took on flesh and blood on purpose. And you died on purpose to reveal who you are and what you've accomplished. And so God, I pray that you would reveal yourself and that you would reveal to us just what you have accomplished on our behalf And God, that you would blow us away with who you are and what you have done. So God, teach us, I pray. Help us to be attentive. And whatever we find here, God, help us to believe it. And we pray these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So if God was going to show his solidarity with humanity, what he would do is he would become human. And in becoming human, he would die. Praise God, because that's what we see. Verse 14, let's read that. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, referring to Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. That through death, we'll stop there. The logic of this sentence is really important. If you notice it, since the children share in flesh and and blood, since humanity is of flesh and blood, likewise Jesus partook of flesh and blood. That's an important reality when we think about the solidarity of God. Does God feel what we feel? The reality is he looked upon us and our weakness and and fragility and he says, ah, you feel that way. I'm going to feel it too. Since you're human, I will become human. And then he goes on and says, so that or that through death. Whenever you see a so that or a that statement, you understand that a statement of purpose is coming. So if I said I drove to the store so that, whatever I'm about to say tells you why I drove there. Jesus took on flesh and blood so that, why? So he could die. It was intentional. We remember in Colossians chapter 2 verse 9. That God became flesh. Remember how Paul writes it? He says, in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. 
God has taken upon himself humanity without ever ceasing to be what he was. He now becomes this God-man, 100% God, 100% man, and he truly was a human being. Shockingly, Jesus still is a human being. We have to realize this because in God displaying his solidarity with humanity, he became human intentionally, purposefully, but not only becoming a human, but also dying as a human intentionally and purposefully. I love what Paul says in Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And talking about the humanity of Jesus, he says these words, born of woman. Or in other words, you and I are born of women. So too Jesus was born of a woman. Just imagine that for a second. God of the universe encapsulated by amniotic fluid. <laughs> wow. Just think about that. God of the universe has nostrils. God of the universe who created water becomes thirsty. God of the universe who created all things for our enjoyment also is someone who experienced hunger pains. God was born of woman. That is shocking. Not only that, but he was born under the law, which means Jesus, being born of a woman, wasn't given special privilege. He was born under the law, just like you and I are born under the law. We must obey God. And Jesus had to as well. And then it says in verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What we see in this text is Jesus is God come in the flesh, an actual human being with actual body parts. And it's weird to say, I said this in the first service and somebody said I shouldn't, but I'll say it again anyways. Jesus went to the bathroom. I know that sounds sacrilegious, but that is the way it is. He's human. And Jesus became human on purpose. He wanted to. And what did he intend to do with his humanity? He intended to die. Remember that, what it said in Hebrews 2? He, became, he took on flesh and blood so that through death, so that he could die. Jesus even said that in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. You probably remember it. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and do what? Give his life as a ransom for many. The idea of ransoming and the idea of redemption is at the core of why Jesus came. Jesus became, God became a human being in Jesus in order to uh, express his solidarity with us and our failings and weaknesses. And he also intended to die as a human being. That is incredible. But what makes it even more incredible is what that death accomplished. Let's keep going in the verse, verse 14. So that through death, he might do two things. He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus took on human flesh and died intentionally to do two things, dethrone the devil and to deliver us from the fear of death. This is staggering. What we come to see is simply this. 
When we think about the death of Jesus Christ, one of the first things that ought to come to our mind is the reality that Satan, by Jesus' death, has been dethroned. Now, maybe that doesn't sit with you yet. The idea of destroy is not annihilate, but it's the idea of to take authority over or to dethrone. Now, how in the world, in the first place, and this is something I've been thinking about, I'm like, how in the world did Satan get his power over death anyway? Ah, good question. Genesis chapter 2. Remember, Adam and Eve in the garden, you can eat of any tree that you want. It's a million yeses. I only have one no for you, Adam, God said. And it's do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you do, in that day you will surely die. But what did Adam and Eve do? They eat from the forbidden tree. And they experience instantaneously a spiritual death. And that's how we know that death is the necessary consequence for sin. But the interesting thing is when you read the story, you realize Adam and Eve didn't die physically. They kept on kicking. And you're kind of going, what in the world is going on here? But if you read the story, what's the next chapter? Well, the next chapter after chapter 3 is chapter 4. And what happens in chapter 4 is we're introduced to Cain and Abel. You know these, these, these men, right? Cain, jealous of Abel, kills Abel. So God says death is going to come because of sin. And then we, we see Adam and Eve continue to live. And we go, what's going on here? And the next story is Cain kills Abel. <gasps> it's real. And what God says in verse 7 is, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, for you but you must rule over it. Cain, sin is coming for you. Death is coming for you. You better rule over it. The question is, did he? He didn't. He murdered his brother. And what's interesting, in chapter 5, we see death laid out for us. And you see this phrase repeated over and over in Genesis chapter 5. You see that Adam lived 930 years, and then you have this phrase, and he died. In Hebrew, it's repeated over and over and over. Listen to this. Adam lived 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 905 years, and he died. Kenan died. Mahalalel died. Jared died. Methuselah died. Lamech died. Noah died. Abraham died. Moses died. David died. Solomon. Everyone's dying. And the question is, how are we going to end this cycle of death? And I think the key is in what God said to Cain. If you can master sin and rule over sin, it will no longer rule over you and you will reverse the effects of sin, namely death. And yet we see in the Old Testament, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. He didn't rule, he didn't rule. We're in big trouble. There appears to be nobody qualified to rule over sin and conquer death. And so the whole Old Testament is an eager anticipation projecting forward. We've got to find somebody who can rule over sin and conquer death. Who is it? And then in the New Testament, you guys are getting it. We're introduced to Jesus. And he conquers death and he rules over sin. And I think this is an important reality. I love the way John Owens puts it. He's a Puritan. He writes, all Satan's power over death was founded in sin. The obligation of the sinner to death gave Satan his power. However, if this obligation of sin was removed, Satan's power would also be taken away. 
If we could find somebody that can undermine sin, he would, in effect, conquer death. And Paul identifies this very person in Colossians chapter 2. He writes, and you, you and, you and I, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him. How has God done this? He has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That is a staggering statement because the debt that you and I are incurring by our sin is multiplying and it's getting larger and larger and increasing more and more. We sin all the day long. And yet when we see this in verse 14, our record of debt has been canceled. And since sin produces death, our record of sin is canceled. Therefore, death is canceled. This is crazy. How did it happen? He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. The record of our debt was nailed to the cross. Last time I checked, Jesus was nailed to the cross. So which was it? Jesus or our record? Yes. Both our record of debt and Jesus himself, because they're synonymous, are spiked to a bloody cross and we are forgiven. And because of that forgiveness, there's a beautiful thing that happens. Remember, if that obligation of sin and the record of sin could be done away with, so too death is done away with. So Satan himself is dethroned in the death of Jesus because sin no longer stands against us as Christians. And therefore, Satan himself, with his power over death, has been dethroned. He is now He is now powerless over us. We need to feel the weightiness of this. The fact is, Satan has been dethroned and Jesus has been enthroned. And where death was, now there is only life. This is good news. And when we think about how this all works, we see verse 15 of Colossians 2. It says this, He disarmed, being God, disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Or in other words, Jesus is our victor. He has triumphed over the grave. He has triumphed over sin. He has triumphed over Satan himself and is now enthroned as king of kings. Yes. Go back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15. There's a second thing that is accomplished by the death of Jesus. To deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What Jesus does in becoming human and dying as a human is deliver all of us who through fear of death are enslaved by that fear. And I know many people will say, I'm not scared to die. They're usually young and stupid. <laughs> but the reality is, death is coming for you. And we know this to be true in part because you and I experience a bunch of little deaths while we live. Let me give you an idea of this. Many of us mourn the death of our childhood. We just wish we could sit around by the fire and play Legos all day. Or we mourn the death of our youth. 
Remember those days when you just eat hostess cupcakes and you don't have to worry about anything? We mourn the death, like I did, the death of my athleticism. Baseball athlete in college gets broke down, can't play anymore. I mourned that. And every one of those little deaths that we have are really just a foreshadowing of the ultimate death that, guess what, if you're sad about childhood and youth and your athleticism and your mental capabilities, just wait till the, the day you're dead. <laughs> and then it is over. And in light of that, you and I are going, oh my goodness, that is freaky. I'm scared of that. I don't want to die. And we know this. We see this in our culture all the time. People are scared of even these little deaths that we experience in life. How do we know that? Because you have midlife crisis and you go buy a sports car. You know how it is. But the reality is a sports car doesn't prevent these, minim these, these little deaths. And nothing else that we do in our lives is ever going to prevent the reality that death is coming for you. It is haunting you. It is chasing you down. And you may be next pretty morbid it's like man I didn't come to church for this <laughs> the reality is brothers and sisters no amount of purchasing no amount of possessing stuff and no amount of no amount of philosophizing is ever going to reverse the irreversibility of death it's coming but and this is going to sound crazy you don't have to die if you don't want to Huh? The reality is the death of Jesus is a substitutionary death, which means that Jesus' death wasn't for his own sins. It was for the sins of another, which means whoever he died for has the opportunity to bypass death. So if you don't want to die, good news, you don't have to. How is this possible? Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who, check this out, loved me and gave himself up for me. Or in other words, because of the death of Jesus, I die to myself. And because of the life of Jesus, I have life. But here's the sticky part. This is the part that frustrates me. Um, this past week, I'm going, yeah, but what is the mechanism? How does this all fit together? And if you know anything about me, I just, I think all the time and I can't stop. And so I'm thinking like, wait a minute, it doesn't seem like the death of Jesus is enough. There has to be something more. And it hit me. Jesus has definitively dethroned Satan. It's done. He has definitively delivered those fearful of death. He has done that. That's what Hebrews 2 says. But my question is, yeah, but how? And then I realized it isn't merely the death of Jesus, but it's the reality that he died. But he didn't stay dead. Jesus died. Amen for that. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose. And because of his resurrection, I start to realize oh, that is how death is conquered. That is how death is defeated. That is how Satan has been dethroned. That is how sin has been vanquished is because Jesus is alive. 
And how Paul puts this together for us is incredible in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Or in other words, don't be ashamed of the gospel, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested or made known through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. And, and look at this sentence. This is worth everything. Who Jesus abolished death. Jesus has brought life. Jesus has brought immortality. And he's made that known or he's brought it to light through the gospel. Now, as morbid as it may be to talk about how everyone's going to die and you're going to die and you're going to die and we're all going to die, the reality is the gospel is always just one butt away. And that sounds weird, but it's death. But there's life. There's sin, but there's righteousness. I'm dead, but I will be made alive again. And that is the gospel. And that is what we are not to be ashamed of. It is good news for those who are fearing death. And those who think that they can't overcome their sin and they can't overcome temptation. Good news, brothers and sisters. Jesus has come and he is victorious and he has defeated all of those powers. This is good. I love how John Calvin summarizes it. He says, it is from this fear that Christ has released us by, going, by undergoing our curse and thus taking away what was fearful in death. Although we must still meet death, let us nevertheless be calm and serene in living and dying because we have Christ going before us and he has risen from the dead and so shall we. And because of that truth, that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 and it's pretty crazy because he just starts mocking death. I may not, and, and Satan, and I don't know if I recommend that, but it's cool nonetheless. 1 Corinthians 15, you know this, we sang about it earlier. When the perishable, which is our weak, frail bodies, puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You can't touch me. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. And you want a reason to be thankful this week? Boom. Verse 57. But... Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, amen, amen. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, you, you, if you're a Christian here, you have to realize that yours, you, your life is a victorious life. And not because you pet, possess victory. If you did, Jesus wouldn't have to come. You don't find victory from within. We find victory from without. Jesus has come in and he is our victor. And he is our reward. And he is our inheritance. Now, when we talk about that, sometimes people are just like, ah, I know, but mm, I have friends who have died. And you said earlier, if I don't want to die, I don't have to. And I go, yeah, that's right. Well, wait a minute, but, but that means my body won't die? No, it's going to die. It's going gonna, it's gonna to die. Yeah, hmm. But the reality is, when your body dies, no, you don't have to, any reason to fear because you get upgraded. <laughs> you see, you go, you, you go from this decrepit, mangy old body, 
And when Jesus resurrects us and we get our glorified bodies, we'll be looking at each other going, that's amazing. (laughs) And in that new creation with our new glorified bodies, we will look back at these bodies and go, it was worth it. Why? Because of this. I I love studying uh, World War II history. It's one of my favorite periods in American history. And we all know that World War II was vicious and it was bloody and it was disgusting and it was horrific. But we also know if I ask this question, on what day did the tides turn in World War II? Our answer would be D-Day, would it not? Because on D-Day, the Allied forces land and we know from that point forward, it's on. But we have to remember that war didn't end on D-Day. The war ended in, in Europe on V-E Day. It's the point at which finally the war was done, the, the treaty has been signed. And if I can help us understand this, I would say this, when Jesus came the first time and he died on the cross and resurrected, that's D-Day. The tides have turned. Human history is not the same anymore. He has come. But we are not yet living in the victory. The war is not over. We're living between D-Day and V-E Day. The war is still on. But there's coming a day, V-E Day, when Jesus will return and consummate his kingdom and we will be resurrected and reign with him forever and ever. But until then, we are in a war. But here's the reality. The person to whom we are in war with is already defeated. Remember that? And so Satan is a defeated foe. He's been dethroned. He's been disarmed. And so we have to walk and march in victory. Brothers and sisters, this is the most amazing reality is you are engaged in a war that you cannot lose. It's over. But the reality is Satan still exists and he's still, he, he's been delivered a death blow. And so he, like a wounded animal, as the Bible says, is like a lion looking for someone to destroy. Remember the most dangerous animals are those who are wounded. He's wounded. He's coming after you. Revelation 12, he's raging because he knows his time is short. But brothers and sisters, let us live in victory. So not only was it necessary for Jesus to be human in order that he may die, becoming our victor, But it was necessary for him to be human and die in order that he would become our advocate. And this is important. We could just end right there, man. Hallelujah. Just go Thanksgiving. All right. Verse 16. (laughs) There's still more verses. Uh, Verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. The word there helps we have, to, we have to get a picture of this. It's the word that means to take into oneself, to take possession of. And so when you think about that, you think about how Jesus, he doesn't take possession of or bring into himself angels. What he does is he takes possession of and brings into himself the offspring of Abraham. And the idea of taking possession of and bringing close to oneself is the idea of both comfort and protection. Now, the only people who get that protection and comfort are the offspring of Abraham. Now, who in the world is that? Obviously, we know it's at least human beings, but many people would say that's the Jewish people. And I would go, no, 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 no. Let's see how to answer that using the New Testament. If we go to Galatians chapter 3, we read this in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons or offspring of Abraham. 
And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So how do we answer who are the offspring of Abraham? We say simply this, the offspring of Abraham are any who believe in the gospel. And it doesn't discriminate. Just as death doesn't discriminate, so too life doesn't discriminate. It's a blessing offered to all the nations. And if you will hear this message that Jesus has died for the sins and resurrected If you will believe that, turning from your sins, turning towards God, if you believe that, you will be saved. Which means Jesus will help you. He will take you into himself, providing protection and comfort. Why? Because he's our advocate. He's our advocate. An advocate is somebody who represents somebody else. So let's see this in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Same thing as verse 14. So that, there's our purpose statement. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. We have to realize that priests in the Bible, their job is to represent people before God. And so for Jesus to be called a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God is another way to say he was the faithful one who represented humanity before God. He is our representative. Now what's amazing about this representation is this. He's perfect for the job. Not only because he was born as a human being, but the reality is he's also God. And who can stand before God but God? God is holy. And so we need a a mediator or an advocate who can stand before the presence of God as holy and perfect, but also who can stand on behalf of human beings to uh, advocate their cause. And guess what? Jesus is both God and man. And so he's the perfect mediator, fully God, fully man, to stand in the gap between us and a holy God. And he represents us. How does he represent us? He represents us as our advocate. And he does so by making propitiation. Look at this, the rest of this verse. He is our advocate or our representative to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What in the world is propitiation? That is your Scrabble word of the day. (laughs) Depending on what version of the Bible you have, the word is probably translated either atoning sacrifice or propitiation. Look at your Bibles and find out which one's there. If it's atoning sacrifice, then what this word means, or how to understand it, is it has sin as its object. So when we think of atoning sacrifice, it's really talking about sin. So to atone for something is to remove it or to make mends for it. Therefore, atoning sacrifice is the idea of the removal of sins. And in fact, this verse teaches that, uh, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It implies that there's a removal of the sins. So we say amen to that. However, in the ESV, it's translated propitiation. And I think it's really important for us to understand what this word means. 
Propitiation doesn't have sin as its object. It has God as its object. And to propitiate means that one has a changed stance or attitude towards something else. Therefore, the propitiation that Jesus made in sacrificing himself before God the Father is the idea that God the Father has had a change in his stance or attitude towards sinners. This is vital. God being holy and just stands opposed to sin and sinners. We recognize that. God is wrathful. Not because God is, I don't know, he has a short fuse, but because God is holy. And it's not the, the reality. Sin isn't horrible because we break a law. Sin is horrible because it defies the majesty of the lawgiver. And because the majesty of God is infinite, so too every transgression against God is infinitely horrible. So God is opposed to sin and sinners. However, because Jesus represents sinners and offers himself as a sacrifice to atone for sins or a propitiation, God's attitude towards sinners has been changed. Instead of being wrathful towards rebellious sinners who mock and belittle God, he has instead turned towards them in affection and has become their greatest ally. Do we understand this? At one point, we were enemies of God. We hated God. But because of the propitiation of Jesus Christ, God's attitude towards us has totally changed. He's no longer against us. He is for us. And remember what Romans 8 promises? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is nobody. Well, yeah, what about Satan? He's already dethroned. What about sin? It's already been handled. Do you see the magnitude of what Jesus has done? This is incredible news. Because many of us, you probably walked in here this morning battling sin. You're letting sin overwhelm you or do something to you. You're probably allowing yourself to be defined by your sin or you're being defeated by your sin or you're just being overwhelmed or overcome by your uh, guilt and shame that comes with sin. And so what ends up happening, if you're anything like me, you recognize your sin and then you just attack yourself. You know what I'm saying? When I sin, I sit there and I'm like, you're so stupid. Why do you do this all the time? You're so undisciplined. You're an idiot. Why can't you just be better? And I assault myself all the time. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? I did that last week. And what I need to do is remember that Jesus is my propitiation. I can't look at myself like that anymore because God doesn't look at me like that anymore. And because God doesn't look at me that way anymore, I shouldn't look at myself anymore, which means I should probably just consider myself the way God considers me, namely, in Christ, therefore perfect. And I know that sounds crazy. You're like, well, but I'm not perfect. Well, we know you're not perfect. Just ask your relatives. They'll tell you. <laughs> On Thursday, you can have all the evidence you need. But what we can do is this. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 2, and I want to show you how advocacy on Jesus' part before the Father and propitiation, how all this fits together, it's so incredibly beautiful. 
My little children, John writes in 1 John 2, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's a good thing. We should try it more. Don't sin. But then we find ourselves sinning the more we try not to. It's like trying to fall asleep. Fall asleep, fall asleep, fall asleep. The more you think about it, the worse it gets. So what are we going to do? And then Satan's standing there accusing us and calling us all kinds of names. And then we basically take over from there. And we're like, he's right. And, and, and Satan is right. I, I am a loser. And la, 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 la. But then look at this. But, I told you, the gospel always includes a really good but. But, but, this is good news. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So in the midst of your assaulting yourself and telling you that you are unworthy and despicable, we have an advocate with the Father. We must remember that Jesus is our advocate, is our representative, and we can go confessing our sin, repenting of sin, knowing that God will forgive us. Not because we're awesome, but because his son is. That's incredible. And keep, verse 2, he is the propitiation for sins. That's kind of the conclusion what John is saying. Don't you understand that Jesus has changed God's mind considering you? Before you hated God and he was against you. Now because of Jesus, it's a love fest. This is amazing news. So when we do sin, my encouragement to you would be this. Draw near to the crucified representative. Stand behind the righteous advocate. Remember his blood, remember his death, remember his resurrection. Do not lie to yourself by thinking you can try harder. Don't lie to yourself thinking that you can believe harder. I don't even know what that looks like. You just, and somehow by trying harder and believing harder, I'm going to make it. No, you're not. The reality is you simply do this as Jesus says, repent of this nonsense, turn to Jesus, and in so doing, you will be saved. If you're not a Christian here, this is your prescription for your lifelong fear of death and the sin that is just dogging you. And if you're a Christian, this is your prescription for how to get out of this where you attack yourself. Remember Jesus. He died to become our advocate. Verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because Jesus suffered in temptation, he can help us when we're being tempted. The temptation that you and I feel all the time is to not believe God about what he has promised and what he's done. You and I are just like, I don't know, it's too good to be true. If Jesus paid it all, what's left for me? Nothing. Nothing's left for you. You don't do squat. He's done it all. It's finished, he said. Yeah, but he doesn't know what I go through. He doesn't, he doesn't feel what I feel. What are you talking about? I love how C.S. Lewis writes in A Mere Christianity about this temptation, this idea that Jesus couldn't possibly understand what I'm going through because my temptation is so big. He says this, no man knows how bad he is until he tries very hard to be good. <laughs> yeah. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. 
Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would, would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of the evil impulses inside of us until we try to fight against them. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the fullest extreme what temptation means. He is the only complete realist. Or in other words, who better to ask for help from than the one who has gone before us and never failed? So in our temptation, we often say, God, do you know what this is like? Do you know how hard this is? And he goes, yes, try me. I've been through that and more. I never quit. I never failed. And then we say, well, well I keep failing. What do I do? We have to remember Jesus' promise. I've come for you. And remember when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he left the Holy Spirit to be our what? Helper. And so the indwelling Holy Spirit provides the enabling and empowering grace necessary to say no to temptation and to master sin and to end the cycle of death. That's an incredible power. And it's made available to all who will believe. As Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, you have an advocate. You have access to the throne room of grace. And grace and mercy of God is there to help you. So I ask you confidently go into that throne room. You know, in the Reformation, the time of the Reformation, Christianity had forgotten what the gospel is. And the Reformation was a rediscovering of the gospel because so many people had forgotten that they are saved through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And so because of this ignorance, uh, a lot of people started writing what are called catechisms. They are uh, a document in question and answer format to teach people theology and to help with preaching. And in 1563, one catechism was written called the Heidelberg Catechism. It's one of my favorites. It's written in Heidelberg, Germany. And it asks this question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Christian, you need to answer that question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Listen to this answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for what is your only comfort in life and in death? It is that you are not your own. Jesus has bought you. And he's taken you to himself. 
to comfort you and protect you. Satan has been dethroned. Sin has been defeated. And death has been laid in its grave. Father, thank you. What can we possibly say in light of these truths? We are liberated from the tyranny of Satan and the devil. We have been set free from the fear of death. God, we are so grateful that you have done all that was necessary on our behalf. The debt has been paid. Thank you, Jesus, for putting an end to death and offering life. For your glory and our joy, in Jesus' name.